0: I'm really excited about this topic uh, and happy to be with you all. And so, Thank you have given me input as, well as, well well as well well. to what things you can so, with the Old Testament. Really, I have found I've been teaching the, the, the Old Testament for about 27 years now is because regularly my students uh, uh this that, year that, that really some is it places so I'm, so I'm hoping that we can kind input, of give you a few lenses of ways understand. of look, so tried a few to, ways of looking at uh, it put together that something will that just that make it come into clarity uh, for you uh, and once it, once you get those lenses on i think you'll find and there really are just a couple of keys that make a big big difference uh and then a thousand little keys that can make a little difference but a couple of keys that will make a big difference that i think will just bring this all into focus so that uh, eventually then, you know, our lens should help us to see something like this, right? Where it, it will bring the gospel, especially the gospel centered on Jesus Christ, uh, into focus for us if we get the, the right interpretive lens. So that's part of what we're going to do. Now, I've spent um, uh, a lot of time, I, I just had this feeling in early November, that I needed to kind of shelf everything else I was doing and just make as many resources available for people to understand the Old Testament as possible. So I've put together a lot of stuff. I'm going to show you a a website. I was a little bit hesitant to put it up here for this audience, and I'll tell you why, but this is outofthedust.org. And now the reason I was hesitant for this audience is because I I have a couple books that are highlighted that are for sale on there, all right? And I am not trying to make money off of my ward on Sunday. So if any of you for that's right so i should we should have done this tomorrow but no um if any of you and i really do mean this if any of you go to the 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 website to get this other stuff and you see a book and you decide to buy it please let me know and i really honestly would prefer i'd be happier if you tell me that so i can take the like 87 cents that i make from a book sale and i will uh donate that to the ward mission fund and since the olsons have two missionaries out right now i'm sure they'd be happy for that so um but uh just really I'm not doing this for the book sales, so I really almost didn't put it up, but I am going to put it up just because I want you to know if you go on there, there's a link that says Old Testament AIDS, you can find links to articles, links to, uh, to or, or references to books, links to podcasts, I put, uh, uh, I've created a YouTube channel, and you could go to the YouTube channel, but I actually have them link, uh, listed there in an order that's easier I think on this page where I took all these videos that I've made for my classes over the last like 15 years, and they are hokey and low quality. Um, And I made them when I had uh, software that could do five minute videos and no longer. So you'll see like David, one david 1.1 1.2 1.3 1.4 right but actually that turns out well because since then studies have shown that five minutes is about how long uh teenagers have an attention span and young adults have an attention span for for something online so it's good they stop and they start another one and they're, they're set to go again so it's actually divine inspiration uh that we had bad software anyway um uh but it's got all these hokey videos to give you history of things on the old testament um, there's another one where I've, I've started a podcast to try and help people understand the scriptures in general, the Old Testament in particular. So there's a link to that. Uh, oh, I need to update it a little bit, but it's got them in the right order, which doesn't necessarily happen on Apple podcast or other things because they like to put, choose their own order instead of the order I choose. So um, uh, what else I've got or uh, pages for the uh, Abrahamic uh, covenant. Um and I can't remember what else. But, and I'm still putting more up there. I'm trying to get more and more and more stuff up there. So throughout the, it, it, I mean, there's going to be a lot more on there. I'm going to put Isaiah videos on there and so on. So throughout the year, I'm going to try and stay a couple steps ahead of uh, Come Follow Me to create resources that I hope are helpful for, for you. And I've been emailing out and, and uh, putting on these little Facebook groups and stuff, all this information, but there's no one I'd rather have, have it than my ward. So I'm telling you. So ignore the book sales parts of that website. That's for the other people, right, who are probably watching this as well. All right. So if I could, um, if I could get you to understand anything, and that's right, and going to be in the way all the time. And I don't know what that little bar is. Hang on. Uh, okay. Thanks for. How do I? Okay. I don't know. All right. It's gone. Okay. If I could get you to understand anything, it would be this, because I think what um, uh, Sister uh, Whitaker expressed uh, earlier, that this feels like foreign territory, that that's how most people feel. And one of the things that help us understand it is if we can get ourselves to, st- this that interpretive lens, if we can get ourselves to stop feeling it and remember that this is actually home. All right. So I put this picture up. If we were to go to Israel together, then we'd stand in the place where I'm taking this picture. And I'd point out not this hill. This is still the territory of Benjamin. But when you get to those hills right behind it, so the second set of hills, that's the territory of Ephraim. Right? And I say to people, welcome home. That's your ancestral homeland. Right? And honestly, you're reading your family history when you read the Old Testament. The New Testament, for uh, Jews and some people, that would be uh, family history. The Book of Mormon, we're not descended from them. That's relative history, right? It's a a history of our distant cousins for both of those. Doctrine and Covenants kind of is family history. Maybe for some people it literally is if you're, you know, Sidney Rigdon's descendants or something like that. But the Old Testament, these are our ancestors. We're reading about great-great-great-grandma Sarah and great-great-great-grandpa Abraham. This is your story, literally, more than anything else you can read except for your own Grandma Mildred's history, right? That's my grandma's name. Grandma Mildred's history, that's my family history, and that's the only thing that is as much my family history as reading the Old Testament. This is your story. And you have a a kinship with this, that when, when you let it come, it will come to you. It, you'll hit a groove in it because it is your people. You are descended from them. This is your story. Uh, and so I hope we'll start to feel this excitement about saying, welcome home as you study the Old Testament. Welcome to reading the story of your ancestors. It also changes it a little bit because once you realize that, then you also start to realize, okay, in the, in the same way that when I read about uh, you know, so my my grandpa Myron, uh, who was fairly Scottish, could get fairly fiery about things, and I know yeah, I've inherited some of that. Right. Well, when I read about my Israelite ancestors, I should remember the same thing. I've got the same predilections they do. So I the same the warnings that are warnings for them. I really should pay attention to, and the things that they did well. And their talents and gifts, those, I've inherited those as well, right? And so when we start to think of this as family history and as home territory, and as this is a place where we really belong, I think that really can start to change things. And so I hope that, that we'll start to think of this as family history. Uh, okay, why did this stop working again? Because I didn't clicking back here, didn't I? Okay. Everything's temperamental when you don't want it to be. Let's see. Okay. With that in mind, and I've tried to string together a whole bunch of keys, but there, there are themes that one leads to another and so on. So hopefully we get that. The other thing, this is supposed to be a depiction of Jacob and his sons. Uh, the other thing I, will, I hope you'll remember, and this will help the Old Testament make a lot of sense. This is a family story. It's all about the family. They are telling the stories of families. It's Abraham and his family. It's Isaac and his family, Jacob and his family. And the rest of it is a story of Jacob's family. But still, even when we get it more spread out, they, they, The family, for us, the family is the central unit. It's even more so for them. And it's going to be about families. And pay attention to, to what's happening with families there. Um, and, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but, but pay attention to it in this way as well. They aren't going to hide the difficult parts of families. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But this is a story about families. This is a story about Adam and Eve and their family. It's a story about Noah's family and Enoch and so on. Uh, Look for that family theme. And as you look for that family theme, it will speak to you. And you'll notice things that you maybe hadn't before. Uh, You'll notice, for example, that Abraham, you'll start to think, wow, that's really tough that Abraham's father tried to kill him. If you want to talk about a dysfunctional family, um, Abraham's father tried to kill him. And then Abraham was able to forgive him and they got back together for a while, but then it broke apart again. And that's not easy for Abraham, I would guess. Sometimes we forget uh, the personal side of this. Abraham's life was really difficult, not the least of which is that he worked so hard to try and convert his father and his father tried to kill him for it. And then his father came around, and then his father stopped coming around, and Abraham had to leave him behind and never saw him again. That's tough stuff. Uh, And if you think of of, uh, Jacob's family or Joseph's family story, there's some tough stuff in there, right? But there are some lessons to learn from that. So look for these family histories and also the positive things in there, you will see that family is incredibly important to them and and if you keep that kind of interpretive lens in mind, it will help a lot of things make sense. Now that brings us to another uh, really important element and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we spent a lot of time on this last year and other times and that I think that fireside still up on the stakes YouTube channel so but uh, where I talked about the covenant last year but the, the Abrahamic covenant or the new and everlasting covenant, and let's be clear, those are the same things, and it's the same covenant we're part of, and this comes back to that idea of recognizing that we're not so different from them, that this is our family, it's the same covenant, everything still applies. The Abrahamic covenant is the central theme of the Old Testament. It is actually, of and, and Christ fulfilling that covenant. That's true of the Book of Mormon as well. All right, and uh, the New Testament, and so on, and so on. But once you start to recognize that covenant theme and covenant phrases, lots of things will come alive for you. All right, so we'll just touch on this briefly tonight because we talked about it more at length um, last year and that other fireside that you can find if you want. But, but let me just touch on a couple of things. There are a couple of phrases, and you'll see them later on tonight, a couple of phrases that are integral to the covenant that the prophetic writers will typically just invoke quickly. They don't, they don't say, talking about the covenant here with a great big neon sign. They invoke a phrase or a, a concept and they expect you to catch on to the fact that they're talking about the covenant. So for example, when God establishes the covenant with Abraham, he says, I will be your God. When he reestablishes it with all of Israel at Mount Sinai, he says, I will be your God, you will be my people. From then on out, phrases about him being our God or us being his people, are always indicative of the covenant. So when you start reading about Christ or or Jehovah or however, and we'll come back to that issue in a minute, but, and his people recognize that he's talking about the covenant. When he says, uh, then I will be your God, recognize that he's talking about, then we're keeping the covenant again. All right, and we'll see some examples of that tonight. Um, Those phrases are really, really about the covenant, but there are a whole bunch of others. If you kind of keep in mind just the basic covenant promises, like protection, prosperity, posterity, and promised land, and a special relationship with God. If you keep those in mind, what you'll find is that a lot of times prophets just reference one of those promises, and and we're supposed to clue in that they're talking about the covenant. So i just give you an idea or an example, and I think I probably used the same example last January when we did this fireside on the covenant for the stake, but um, from Isaiah. Isaiah, when Isaiah tells Israel, or yeah, it's it's Judah and Israel together, he's speaking to at this point. And he says that uh, after this and this, when they've repented and so on, come back to God, that then they will have children, they'll say, where did these children come from? And they'll have so many children that there won't be room for them. And the children will say, make room for me. And then he says, uh, enlarge your tent. What he's saying is there's not going to be enough room. uh, So basically, and he's comparing it to a family saying, you will have had so many children that your current domicile, which in this case would be a tent, because he's thinking of Abraham, and Abraham was nomadic after he was had to leave his original home, right? So you're going to have to have a bigger tent, and if you have a bigger tent, you're going to have to have longer cords and stronger stakes to hold it down. So when he says, enlarge thy tent, strengthen thy cords, or, or lengthen thy cords, strengthen thy, thy stakes, what he's really saying is, you have to do all this because the promises of the covenant will be full, being fulfilled so strongly it's more than you would have guessed more almost than you can handle so in the end what he's really saying all of that is imagery for saying now god is really fulfilling the covenant promises for you and once you start to recognize that it's just going to come alive for you in a different way and the scriptures actually tell us that will happen and, and again i referenced this last year so sorry if it's a repeat but i think it's worth reminding ourselves of this year if we were to read first nephi nineteen twenty three which is a kind of a famous verse that most of you would be familiar with. I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you a little bit, where Nephi says that that he did liken the scriptures unto themselves that it might be for their profit and learning. You need to read, we often just read that verse and we read it out of context. But if we read the verses before, and well, let's, let, we'll read at least the verse after it. So I'm going to go to First Nephi 19, 23 and 24. Um, but if we were to read the verses before it, it strengthens this even more. Um but verse 1923, and I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. Here's the part that we quote, and we kind of leave everything else out. For I did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. Wherefore I spake unto them, saying, Hear ye the words of the prophet, ye who are a remnant of the house of Israel, a branch who have been broken off. Hear ye the words of the prophet, which were written unto all the house of Israel, and liken them unto yourselves, that ye you may have hope as well as your brethren from whom you've been broken off. Right, And he was talking about Israel and all the verses before this. What he is really saying is, so it's great, that's kind of secondary interpretation we do, which is to insert yourself in all the scripture stories, and that's absolutely a fantastic interpretation. But the primary interpretation is the scriptures are about the house of Israel. You are of the house of Israel, and what he said to Laman and Lemuel applies to you, a remnant who've been broken off, but are still a part of the house of Israel. The scriptures are about the house of Israel. You are of the house of Israel. Therefore, the scriptures are about you. And when you start to see that, and when you start to see that the prophecies aren't just about some general vague group, but they're about you when you recognize that what God did for our ancestors as a whole, he will do for us and for you as an individual, then these stories take on different meanings. And you're not just reading, well, that's really interesting what happened to Israel. You say, okay, if Israel was struggling with that, I'm probably struggling with that. How does God work with Israel? He's probably going to work with me that same way. And we'll give a couple of examples of that as we go along tonight as well. But I think that's really important. So recognize that the covenant is a family affair. God asks a family. To take the covenant everywhere to everyone and get everyone to be part of that family, and we're part of that. That's what President Nelson keeps telling us, right? That we are part of that family who is trying to get everyone to be part of this family. But it's our charge to go out and get that covenant to everyone and bring them in. And he told us that's the greatest cause in the world today, right? And we will come to understand it in in the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament really better than any other book of, books of scripture. Uh, this idea of the covenant and the family. So just kind of keep your eyes out for that. Now. Here's some more kind of kind of big, big uh, picture things with these interpretive lenses. But I, I think this is when we'll really start to get a lot of things that make sense for us. The Old Testament gives us the whole story. It's giving us the big picture and the whole story. It doesn't just give us a little teeny part of the story. All right. So just as an example, for a number of years, and I'm not criticizing anyone for this. It was what was culturally done at the time. We told the church history story, a fair, like modern church history story, a fairly sanitized version. Right? We told all the good things. We left out any struggles that uh, any particular person was having. Right? So uh, you didn't hear ever that Joseph Smith got upset with his brothers, um, and you didn't hear that his brothers were ding-dong sometimes, right? uh, and, and so on and so on. And we're getting to the point where we're saying, well, actually, maybe it's helpful for us to recognize that these great men had some struggles and that these great women had some struggles, because it turns out I have struggles. And it is really helpful for me to see that you can be a great man or woman of God and still have some struggles and that God works with you and you overcome them, right? The Old Testament made no efforts to sanitize the story, right? It was their culture. They gave you the picture warts and all. They gave you the whole story. Right, And that's important to remember, and we're going to look at that for a couple of reasons, but let me just give you an example. I once met a woman who said, um, I stopped reading the Old Testament when I got to the book of Judges because I just couldn't see how this was a story about people doing things well. And I'm thinking, it's not. The, The end of the book of Judges is the story about the low point of Israel, and they're saying, this is when we really messed up. This is how not to act right they they told you the story of their worst moments and what happened to them as a result and how they needed to learn from it right so it's not telling us just everything good it's giving us the whole thing it's telling us the messy parts of the family stories right jacob's family is messy right they all right, not my Jake, well, maybe his too. I see Jacob and Sabrina looking at each other and, and nodding heads, but anyway, um, Jacob's family is messy. He's got sons that literally sell each other into slavery. And that was because they were gonna kill each other, but they decided instead of let's sell each other, right? I mean, that's just tough stuff. There's a lot of messy stuff in these things. And yet these are some of the best people ever in the history of the world. And they had these difficult, messy things. And, and we can learn from that. And it gives me hope because I'm messy. All right. Um, it gives us the big picture in all sorts of ways. So that's what we're gonna focus on for a little while is to look at the, the big story, the whole story and not just the little picture. And we're gonna have n- a number of elements that we're gonna do that with where we're going to look for that that whole story, all right? So yeah, oh, here's the whole story warts and all. That's supposed to be pictures of mud splashing on us, but now it looks like motor oil, but anyway, all right. Um, Now, part of that is the whole story of who God is. And I mean a couple of things by this. Uh, and, And this is really important. This is one of the things that I think really makes people struggle with the Old Testament is because they come into the scriptures with what I think the world, a picture the world has created of what God should look like. And they try and impose that on God. And God is telling them something different. And it's confusing to them. Wait, that can't be what God is like. Because the world told me, uh, that that's not what God is like. My Protestant heritage, well, not Protestant, a lot of Protestant heritage is really hellfire and damnation, but there's another branch of Protestant heritage that's more recent that we are very affected by that says God is warm and fuzzy all the time, nothing else, rather than allowing God to tell us who he is. We also have uh, and, and a cultural narrative uh, of the Trinity that we try to divorce ourselves from, but we can't fully. And then we try and react to it and we confuse ourselves. Um, and, and sometimes that confuses us. So let's, let's ask this question and we, it, we might as well have just at least a little bit of interaction between us. So I did mean to say, please questions anytime throughout the whole thing. Any questions, jump in with questions, all right? So you've got a question. Oh yeah. Good. So let me clarify the question. Who is speaking to Moses in Moses chapter one? Who is the person speaking to Moses? God. Jehovah. Okay. And who is Jehovah? Christ. Christ. And that can be really confusing because quite often he says, my son, in my in similitude, by the word of my power, my son. And that sounds a little bit odd, right? So let's be clear about a couple of things. We, we have so, some really clear doctrines on a couple of things. One is that after the fall, we are so cut off from God's presence that God cannot and does not interact with us except through an intermediary, with the exception of introducing his son. So he will not interact with us except through an intermediary. And that intermediary, most of the time, is Jesus Christ. That's why we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. We, we, we can't pray without that. We can't address the Father without that. We are that cut off from his presence. We need Christ to bridge the gap that has been created between us. All right, But Christ can and does bridge the gap. One of the effects of that is then that God, who in the Garden of Eden could speak directly with Adam and Eve, will no longer speak directly with Adam and Eve or their descendants. Instead, he will speak with them through his son or angels. Right when his son speaks to us, his son is is sent to act for and in behalf of the Father. And I think we best understand Jehovah as the title or the role of Christ when he is acting for and in behalf of the Father. So, and I'm I'm just going to ask, there's, uh, I think someone on um, uh, Zoom, who uh isn't muted and we're getting kind of a funny little bit of a feedback anyway so it, it, just a little funny feedback so if you can uh, mute yourself, we'll pray end that feedback. yes yeah Moses one thirty three right. So, and I'm just going to repeat that for these guys to hear. In, in verse 33, he talks about that he's created these worlds by the, the power of his Son, which is his only begotten. Now, that's Christ speaking, but he's not speaking as Christ. He is speaking as the Father. In his role of Jehovah, he will act as if he is the Father. He will talk as if he is the Father. Everything he does, he will do as if he is the Father, because that's what he's been sent to do, represent the Father. In fact, the way Elder Holland would say it is he is revealing the Father to us, and the primary way that the Son reveals the Father to us is acting the same way the Father would act. He's very explicit about that in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he just does it. He just acts as if he is the Father. So, we will best understand the Old Testament or everything in general. Now, that will change after his mortal ministry. In the Doctrine and Covenants, he will speak as if he is Jehovah, the Son, right? But before his mortal ministry, when he acts or speaks as Jehovah, he is acting as if he is the father. We will understand it best if we think of it as the father. You can know in the back of your mind this is the son representing the father, and that that's one of the son's roles, right? So this is part of what I mean by understanding all of who Jehovah is. Jehovah is the son acting in this role, but we understand it best if we take it the way he is trying to present himself, which is as the father. Now we'll want to understand both and know both, but the story makes most sense if you just read it as the father, and then it makes sense when Jehovah says, "My by the power of my son," or when in uh, Isaiah 53 he says it, it pleased the Jehovah to bruise his servant, who seems to be the son. Right? That's because he's speaking as if he is the father. Did you have a, a comment or question? Divine investiture of authority is the phrase that's used for someone acting for and on behalf of someone else. And this would have been easier for people in the ancient world to understand. Right. Even actually for people 200 years ago, like the role of secretary of state was created because you couldn't correspond with uh, France so easily. So you send Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson over there and they just had to act as if they were the president because they didn't have time to wait for the letters to go back and forth and back and forth. So they acted as if they were the president. They were treated as if they were the president. I don't know when uh, Moses was uh, exactly when he was born, but I suspect it's around the time of Ramses II, so we'll use an example from that time. Ramses II makes a treaty with the Hittites. The Hittite king sends a representative down into Egypt. To, to work on this treaty. When he arrives, he says, I am the third, great, and mighty, beloved of the gods, blah, 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 right? Everybody knows he's not the third, but they will all address him as if he is. They will treat him as if he is. He has the power to enact things as if he is, and he will act as if he is. They all get it, but this is how it works. That's what Jehovah is. He's been given. So Hattus, this guy who went for the third had the in, the royal investiture of authority. But Jehovah has divine investiture. He represents the divine. He d- represents the Father. And so we'll understand this best if we think of it in that way. Now, one other thing, and, and you may already know this, but let's just make sure this will make things easier. In the King James Version, uh, out of respect for the Jewish tradition of not using the name Jehovah, which I've been doing a lot tonight, um, they did not write Jehovah they wrote Lord in small caps. So anytime you find it written Lord in small caps, that means Jehovah. That's what's written in the Hebrew is Jehovah, all right? So that, that might also be helpful. Uh, all right, so we just did who is Jehovah. But let's ask this question also, what is Jehovah like? And this is where we get into this uh, idea that sometimes we want to impose upon him the warm and fuzzy part. And sometimes, honestly, we're a little confused because of what we see of Christ in the new Testament. Now I'm, I, I cannot tell you how much I fully, fully reject and am driven nuts by people who say, well, the God of the old Testament is a God of justice. And the God of the new Testament is the God of mercy, because I think that just means you didn't read either book carefully. Um, but, uh, and you certainly didn't continue on with the history of the Jews a few years after Christ. Right. But, um, But it is true that one of the things Christ came down to do is to be an exemplar for us. Nephi teaches us that, that we should try and emulate Christ. Well, if that's true, we should also be aware that there are a number of things that Christ or the Father are going to do that they are not asking us to emulate. Judgment is mine, saith the Lord, right? So we're not going to see Christ in his mortal ministry display his full roles I guess it display the full range of his roles. He is going to display a limited range, for the most part, those things that we should emulate. But let's not let that small period of time define who Christ is and what he's like for us. Or and remember that Christ is revealing the Father to us. So again, if we're going to talk about Jehovah and thinking of it as the Father, it, it, it doesn't matter. Christ and the Father and the Son have the same attributes. And the Son only acts the way that the Father would have. So let's not let that small span of time define for us what either the Father or the Son are like. Let's let the Father or Jehovah present himself to us the way that he, in, he does in the Old Testament. Let's not cross out the parts we don't like, which is what we tend to do. We kind of give ourselves a watered-down God often. We don't let him give us the whole range of stuff. We ignore the stuff that we don't like, frankly, that the world and our Protestant heritage has taught us not to like, or part of half of Protestant heritage. Um, we ignore that stuff, right? But God is going to, so just as an example, let's go to to Moses, and we'll come back to this again in a little while, but let's go to Moses chapter 7. Just to be clear, Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first part of Genesis, all right? So this is Old Testament stuff. But if we're going to go to Moses chapter seven, let's go to verse 34. Moses chapter seven, verse 34. He's getting ready to talk about the flood and we'll talk about the flood again in a while. And I better keep going because I'm a third of the way through and we're almost out of time. So um, verse 34, and the fire of mine indignation is kindled against them And in my hot displeasure will I send in the floods upon them, for my fierce anger is kindled against them. That's pretty fiery, wrathy stuff, isn't it? Now jump down to verse um, 37. But behold, their sin shall be upon the heads of their father, Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom, and the whole heaven shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore should not the heavens weep? seeing these shall suffer. This is the same God, and he says, I will come out in hot, fiery wrath and indignation, and I will cry about doing it. It will pain me, but I have to do both. And it's actually out of mercy that he does both, and we'll return to that idea in a minute. But but let's let God uh, present himself to us in his full range of who he is, all right? And, and there's a danger when we don't. When we get only the soft... Fuzzy mercy, uh, Jehovah or Christ, we actually lose something really important, all right? So if we're going to ask what is Jehovah like, is this Jehovah or is this Jehovah? And the answer is yes. All right This is a depiction of him accepting someone back. This is a depiction of him fighting Leviathan for us. So interestingly, in Isaiah 25, we get him saying that he reaches out and wipes away our tears. That's at the end of Isaiah 25, at the beginning of Isaiah 27. And, and Isaiah 26 is in between, but it's actually all part of the same thought. It's just flowing together. Someone put chapter breaks in just to mess this up. But anyway, same thing. There, he talks about coming out in might against Leviathan with his sword that is bathed in blood. All right. Leviathan representing Satan and death and hell and everything else. But I'm here to tell you that the reason he can do this is because he did this. The reason he can, uh, I'm pointing, and no one on Zoom can tell what I'm pointing at. The reason he can wipe away our tears with a hanky in one hand is because he has a sword in the other. Frequently in the Old Testament, in the Book of Mormon, in the New Testament, in the Doctrine and Covenants, he talks about relieving us from that which oppresses us. And how does he relieve us from our oppression? He conquers it. He destroys it. Now, that's a two-edged sword, kind of literally, but that's a two-edged sword, because if you're the one who is doing the oppressing, this is not going to work out well for you. But if you're the one who is following God and being oppressed for it, this will work out well for you. The reason he can wipe away our tears is because he conquered death and hell because he will conquer everything and everyone who gets in the way of his people that are uh, keeping covenant. He will conquer it all. And he does this with hot fire and indignation. And we're gonna talk, there's still a chance for them, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he also does it to relieve us from that which we cannot conquer ourselves, most especially death and hell. And I believe, you know, I've thought, and we've talked about this before, there's this huge, huge, huge wave of anxiety and depression going around in young adults and youth today. And I think all the time about why. And I now have a list that I've made in my head. I'm convinced of about 20 reasons, and I think they're all true. Um, it's a lot of things. But I think this is part of one of them, that we have taught our children so much about the warm and fuzzy Christ, which they love. But the problem is that that Christ can't conquer what they're afraid of they need the conqueror. They need to know that Jehovah can and will conquer everything that is standing in their way, that there is nothing that they are suffering from, nothing that they are worried about that he cannot and will not conquer. But only warm and fuzzy can't do that. We need to let the Old Testament show us the God of might and majesty. The divine warrior, that's the phrase that's often applied to this. He is a divine warrior, and he says, I will fight your battles for you. Right? We heard this phrase, uh, I can't remember when, but someone said this today, but this idea uh, where he says, be still and know that I am God. That doesn't help you if you don't know that God can and will conquer for you. But if you know that he's the God that comes out, like this is Old Testament language, right? That comes out and with a blast of his nostrils destroys the Egyptian army. When you know that's your God, you're not so afraid of the Egyptian army or whatever it is that stands in your way, right? So I hope that we won't shy away from, and I've heard students again and again and again reading Isaiah or something else and say, I'm really uncomfortable with this language. And that's because they've been taught to be uncomfortable with it. And we have to stop that. And we have to come to be comfortable with a God who does both. And we'll talk more and understand that more as we go along. Yeah. Good. And I'm going to just repeat that a little bit because I don't know if the people on Zoom could hear it. it And and I'll, I'll paraphrase if that's all right. But it is important, I believe, for us to come to understand that God has this full range of emotions because we have a full range of emotions. And, and if we try and suppress that, it causes problems for ourselves. But when we acknowledge it, then we're okay. But, but then we need to learn from him as well. So let's go on to this next part. Uh, I may have this verse up somewhere, but I, I don't think I do. Uh, there's this fantastic verse in Jeremiah where God says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, uh, I, this part I know I'm, I'm quoting for sure. He says, I will keep anger and I am merciful. Now, there's, there's an important distinction, right? Anger is something that he has to do. Wrath and, and, and punishment, and that, that's something he has to do. Love and mercy is something that he is, right? And so I, I'm fully agreeing with you. We will experience these things. Uh, the, we're complex beings. We'll experience a full range of emotions. The question is, which ones are ones that you do and then you... Uh, don't make your core self and core identity and 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 who you really are and which ones do you make who you really are, I think is, is important. But I think you're right. We have to understand and allow both God and ourselves to be all these things. All right. We got to keep moving on. All right. So we want to see the whole story, the 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 big picture, not just the little picture, right? Um, and, and by that, uh, I also put this up. I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of uh, parable where you get these blind guys that feel one part of the elephant. And they all think it's just one thing, uh, and you have to see the whole picture to know what it really is. You have to do that with the Old Testament, but so often, and I think, again, this is our own cultural lens, we get stuck in the, the Rathis part, and we don't read the whole story. We don't see the whole story, so let's, uh, let's look at, at this, and if we're going to look at this, we also have to look at another part, the language of the story. In fact, I think this may be the one thing that helps you understand the Old Testament better than anything else, and it's to understand how symbol-oriented they are. They are incredibly symbol-oriented. And again, we live in a culture, and I'm not pointing any fingers at any lawyers, but we live in a, legalistic, um, in a legalistic culture. And a legalistic culture needs for one thing to mean one thing. It doesn't work in a legalistic culture if A can mean B, C, D, and E, right? because then you don't know how to interpret the law. Um, And as a result, we are divorcing ourselves from symbolism because symbolism, by its nature, is supposed to have several valid interpretations. So, uh, And it's also, we have an individualistic society. I'm not going to get into that because I'd go on forever. But anyway, okay. so um, we need, but but the Lord speaks in symbols. In fact, Orson F. Whitney, when he was president of the Quorum of the Twelve, said the Lord speaks in symbols. It's his favorite language. And it's absolutely true. And the Old Testament peoples, were familiar with that. They were a symbol-oriented people. And so we're going to get the Old Testament speaking in symbols in all sorts of ways. But here's another problem. When we think of symbols, we immediately think of things carved into stone or painted somewhere or something. When they thought of symbols, the first thing they thought of was symbolic action. Things that happened and things that you did that were symbols. And the Old Testament is laden with symbolic action on large scale. All right, so for example, I think that the Exodus really happened. I also think it happened in a way where the way it happened is a set of symbols that teaches us stories. Not just stories, sorry, that teaches us lessons. It's a story that teaches us lessons in the way it happened. It was a huge set of symbolic actions. There are a thousand little sets of symbolic actions all along the way, and the prophets are going to be asked to prophesy using symbolic action, sometimes as much or more than words. In fact, most of so like, Elijah and Elisha, I think, prophesied with their actions far more than they prophesied with words. I'm not sure we don't have their writings, and I'm not even sure they knew how to write, but um, but they, they, uh, they prophesied with their actions. And you'll get someone like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these guys, Ezekiel, I, man, this poor guy, he has, he's asked to do so many crazy symbols by the Lord. Uh, some of them involve eating dung, right, that's fun for a prophet, Uh, he has to shave his hair off, I'm just waiting for President Nelson to do this, so there's not a lot of hair to do, but he could still do, shave his hair off, and uh, stab a third of it with the sword, throw a third of it in the uh, wind, and uh, burn a third of it, to symbolize that when the Babylonians come to Jerusalem, a third are going to die by the sword, a third are going to die by fire, and a third are going to be scattered, right, so it's not good enough for him to say that, because that's not their primary language, their primary language is symbolism, so he has to do it. All right, now we're gonna show you a couple of examples of this as we go along, but symbols have to be answered or or anything big has to be taught or answered in symbolic action as well as anything else, it has to be in symbolic action. So look for that symbolic action and, and it will help some things make sense, all right? So again, we're gonna go back to this, thinking of symbolic action and seeing the big picture of the whole story Let's look at a couple of examples. So this is one. You may or may not remember this story, but there's the story of Aaron and Miriam coming to Moses and saying, Moses, you take too much upon yourself. We're co-equal with you. Now, Aaron and Miriam were fantastic people, but this represents a problem. And it's not going to be enough for Moses to say, you are wrong. Let me teach you a correct principle because their challenging him was an action. And so an action has to come back. That's the language. If he just says something, that's not going to speak to them. An action is a symbolic action is going to be what has to speak to them as well as words. All right. Now, I don't know why Aaron seems to always get off scot-free. I don't know. He got got the like uh, go past jail card somehow all the time. At least some of it is because God wants him to keep doing his priestly office and he doesn't want that interrupted. But I don't know exactly why else. But anyway, so he gets out of jail. But the answer is going to come back to Miriam. All right. And the answer is, I mean, Moses tells them an answer. No, this is incorrect. But the real answer that everyone notices is she's struck with leprosy. Right? She becomes a leper, which is now they now they understand. Okay, whoa, well, that was a bad idea. Don't challenge. Don't say that you're equal with Moses. Moses is God's representative. We're all on a different level. They get it now. All right? Now, this is our temptation. And this is what almost everyone I've ever talked to is to say, wow, that's pretty severe. That's pretty drastic, and they stop with the story there, but that is not the end of the story. What happens next? Well, Miriam's healed almost immediately. As soon as she acknowledges this, Miriam is healed, and what's more than that, because she was a leper, and the law of Moses, for all sorts of good reasons, says lepers can't be around everyone else. She can't be around um, everyone else until a purification period is over, which is going to be a week for her, and so the whole house of Israel stops and waits. Miriam is healed, Goes through a week of purification. She's admitted back in in full fellowship, welcome arms. Now we can all move on. Now think about the symbolic story there. Now think about what God is teaching us when we read the whole story. Yes, sometimes we'll make mistakes. And yes, sometimes God will have to teach us lessons. And sometimes it may not be that fun. And yet it's not a big deal. And He can certainly heal us from it. And He's not moving on without us. If we're willing to come back, He'll wait and bring us in with him, full fellowship, and take us where we're going. That's a beautiful story, actually. When people think of it and stop early, it seems like a harsh story, but you read the whole story, it's a beautiful story with great and hope-filled messages for us, right? Let's give a couple of other examples. Here's one when we think of wrath, and we just read these verses. This is the story we think of, right? Noah and the Ark. And we could get into, there are all sorts of great things that that, uh, John Taylor teaches us about, well, really, the flood is merciful because it stopped uh, children from coming into such terrible environments, and it stopped the people from doing terrible things. And when you read about people who were only thinking of evil continually, and they hated their own blood, and you think, okay, if own blood means your family, which it probably does, so people who hate members of their own family, and all they do is think of bad things continually, you can imagine the horror that's going on in families like that. And it is merciful to stop that, right? We can talk about all that and all of it's absolutely true. But again, we're still only getting part of the story. We're fortunate that we know the rest of the story with this. Because it doesn't end with the flood and everyone but eight people dying. We know that when Christ was in the spirit world, the group he organized the work for and sent people to were the people in Noah's day who died in the flood. The end of the story wasn't that they all died in the flood. Even that wicked group, which scripture tells is the most wicked group ever. There are a couple of groups that get that name. So they must all reach maximum velocity of wickedness and they're tied for being wicked, right? But um, but most wicked group ever, It was, the story wasn't over for them. God was still giving them another chance. I think what he did was he said, I have done everything. And and part of the story we also miss is that 100, Noah preached for 120 years. That's, that's a pretty good chance to repent. And they, I think at some point, God said, okay, I've done everything I can for you. You are not going to change. I'm going to send you to your room. And I'm going to give you a couple thousand years to think about this. And then let's talk again. Right? And isn't that why we send our kids to our... I mean, I never have... My kids are perfect, right? But, um, but so I never have to. But, but isn't that why people send their kids? Okay, things have gotten crazy. Go sit in your room, calm down. And then I think when you're in a different mindset, we can talk and try and work this out. That's exactly, we, we've, mortality is so big to us because it's all that we know. So every time we read about someone God killing someone, we think, oh my gosh. And I think God thinks, oh, I just got to put them in our timeout. I just got to get them in a different situation and then I'm going to work with them again. We know that's what he did with the most wicked group ever. He just put them in another another place and then worked with them again and gave them another chance. If we keep that in mind, it changes all sorts of stories, right? So in fact, I think I have uh, yeah, the conquest, right? When God says, okay, you're going to go in to Canaan. And, I, and we know actually with this group that they were given 400 years to try and repent. And Nephi tells us that they didn't, right? So God tells Abraham, sorry, you can't inherit the promised land right now. Your descendants are going to have to go to Egypt for 400 years because the people in Canaan aren't ready yet. I need to give them another chance. And then Nephi tells us more about that. They, they preached They didn't listen. So God says, okay, they're not going to change. I've done everything I can with them. I'm going to have to send them to another room. If I leave them in that room and you come in, then you're going to start to do the same bad stuff they do. So you got to get rid of all of them. So you don't do the same bad stuff. Well, Israel didn't get rid of all of them and they did the same bad stuff, but they started to get rid of all of them. And we say, get rid of genocide. This is terrible, right? They're all dying. But in fact, this is God saying, I tried and they're not listening anymore, let's put them in a different room and later I will give them another chance. If he did it with the, days of the people in the days of Noah, I'm sure he did it with the Canaanites as well. And he's gonna do it with other people where we read that this person was struck dead, that person was struck dead. And for a mortal person, death seems like a really big deal. And for God, it doesn't. It's just moving you to a different room to work with you. So we need to see that big picture, that big story, right? Let's think of it in in these terms. Israel, we read lots of times of Israel being punished, being um, destroyed or nearly destroyed, being captured, taken into captivity, scattered, and so on. And it always seems like the end of the story, but in fact, we should know better than anyone else, it is not the end of the story. So let's just look at the 10 tribes, our ancestors. Scattered in about uh, 720, between 735 and 720 BC is when the scattering starts. All right. That's God humbling them because he tried and tried and tried and they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't repent. So he sent them to a lot of different rooms. And 2,500 years later, he's bringing them back. All right. The story didn't end with the scattering. That was actually a tool in the humbling process to bring them back. But now that they're scattered, they can bring everyone back with them. But if you want to talk about patience and mercy, and I am not exaggerating when I say when I read the Old Testament, I see God's mercy and patience more than I do in any other book of Scripture. Because it says again and again and again that I will continue to work with you. I'll have to do this to you, and always, he says, but then I'll continue to work with you. We'll read a couple of examples in a minute. Always, always, even if it's 2,500-year cycle, he will continue to work with Israel. Now, again, keep in mind then that what he does with Israel, where he has to humble them, has to scatter them, but then he keeps working with them to bring them back. He does that with Israel as a whole. He does it with Israelite or covenant individuals, right? He will do it with you the same way he does with Israel. So when you read these big stories, think, okay, how's he doing that with me? When you read them struggling with idolatry, don't ask, uh, oh, that's where. Don't say, well, that's where that they did that. And don't ask, do I do that? You do. Ask, how do I do that? And that's when the Old Testament is going to start to teach you, right? Okay, we got to keep moving on. Um, Let me give you this kind of big picture again real quickly. Hosea and Gomer. This will be big picture. This will be symbolic action. It will be all sorts of things, all right? I think Hosea and Gomer, which most people don't like, that that book, I think it encapsulates the Old Testament and the plan of salvation almost more perfectly than anything else, all right? So I'm going to, real quickly, Hosea is a prophet. He's told to marry a harlot, all right? Now, it seems, if you kind of piece a couple of things together, it seems that this is someone who had been sold into slavery and was forced to be a harlot, and he is told to go buy her, this we know, he's told to go buy her freedom, so that's what makes me think the other part. He's told to buy her freedom and marry her, and he does, and they have children. And then she says, I kind of missed the stuff I was, the, the payments and the nice things I was getting when I was a harlot, so she leaves him and, and plays a harlot again. All right, and this is, I think I have this verse up. This is what God says about it. Therefore, will I return and take away my corn and the time thereof and my wine and the season thereof, and I will recover my wool and the flax given to cover her nakedness, and I will cause all her mirth to cease or happiness, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given. me." Right, he says, okay, if she left you because she liked all of that other stuff, I'll take away all the other stuff. Take away the happiness, take away the things, the food, whatever, I'll take it all away. Because then, do I have this verse up? Nope, I don't, sorry. Because then what happens is she she realizes, oh, this is not the way to get happiness. And she comes back to Hosea. And I, I thought I had these verses. Maybe I'll get to them. Maybe they're up here somewhere. But then God says, and he compares this to Israel, right? So this is symbolic action. The prophet's marriage is symbolic of what Israel does as a whole. And then he says, when she comes back, he says, well, to to fully understand this, speaking of more symbolic action, their children, one of them was named Lo-Ruhami, which means no mercy. And the other one was named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. And God says, that's because what's going on with Israel right now, they are no longer my people, and they are not receiving mercy. Remember, receiving mercy and being called God's people are uh, promises of the covenant. So, what he's saying is, I can't, they're not keeping the covenant, so I can't give them covenant blessings. But when Hosea comes back, what God says is, now they are my people, and I am their God. In other words, all he was waiting was for them to come back, and he, we're back in the covenant keeping business. And he, when, when Gomer comes back, sorry, did I say Hosea? Someone needs to correct me because I'm old and I say these things. So, all right. Um, so, when Gomer comes back, then then he does all of that, right? And he's just waiting and anxious to give those covenant blessings again. All right, so we're going to read just a couple more verses. This is from Isaiah, just to give you uh, some ideas. I'm going to hide this little thing here, um, uh, give you an idea. This kind of language is all over in the uh, Old Testament. We just need to look for it. In fact, I, I counted one time, and of the 16 prophetic books. Um, Oh, there are more than 16. I think there are 18. I can't remember now. But anyway, all all but four of them end on a message of hope. And the four that don't, it's because there's actually something else that's about to happen, and then it gets to a message of hope, right? So anyway. Um, like Jeremiah ends, but lamentations are what finishes after, and and that's sad, but then it has a message of hope and so on, all right? So, this is from Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's beautiful, right? Now, Isaiah has tons of wrathy stuff in it, and we shouldn't discount that, but the purpose of the wrath, just like the purpose of what's going on with Gomer, is to say, I'm going to, to humble them. I'm going to make them miserable so they realize what they're doing wrong and that they need me. And then they will come back to me. Just like Gomer realized, I'm not happy with that Hosea, so I'll go back to Hosea. We need to realize we're not doing so well without God and we come back to God, right? And when we do, he will abundantly pardon. From Ezekiel. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love and I spread my wing over thee, and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and you became mine. That's, that's beautiful. And this kind of language is everywhere in the Old Testament. This God always, after he'll humble, but then he's going to bring us back, right? So this is from Ezekiel also. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he has committed, he surely shall surely live, he shall not die. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Do you get how much he's pleading with us? He'll humble all he needs to, but he will always then plead and say, please come back. Yes, right. Yeah. So the Lord always pleased. Look at that. That's pretty good. All right. For I'm the Lord. Uh, for I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed, even from the days of your fathers. So, and notice we're in Malachi. This is the end of the Bible. I've been trying to take you through all the prophetic writings. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. This idea of turning or returning to God is the most off-repeated pleading phrase in the Old Testament. It's what he wants. Please turn or return unto me, all right? So, again, I want you to understand This is this is coming home. This is family history, and if this is what was happening with Israel as a whole, it's what God does with each of us. Read it that way. Read what happened to our ancestors, how Can I be part of the good parts of that? How can I avoid the bad parts that are my predilections, right? Um, And and it's intended to be that way. Again, from Malachi, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers. If you read this whole thing in context, he's talking about these fathers. It includes our ancestors, my great-great-grandma and great-grandpa, right? But the primary context, what he's talking about is our covenant uh, ancestors and the covenants. And what he's saying is, turn your hearts to these fathers. The key of Elijah has been turned. So you should have your heart turned to your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. But also, and maybe most especially, you should have your heart turned to these people in the Old Testament to understand and identify with them and learn from them. All right, I think that might be everything, yeah. Um, but uh, what I want to emphasize is that this this stuff is written, it it may seem strange, there's a huge cultural gap, there's a huge temporal gap, but the people themselves are people like us. One of the things I like to do with my students is read this poem written by a schoolboy where he says, I'm having a hard time concentrating because I keep thinking about my family back home and this girl and stuff like that. And I tell them, they're not that different than us. So look for how they're like us Understand that they're speaking a language of symbolism. Understand that they're telling us this whole big story, like I've shared. um, And then see how you fit into the story. And I think you'll find that the Old Testament starts to speak to you in, in new and powerful ways. And that the God that we read about in the Old Testament is a powerful God who loves us and is capable of saving us and wants to save us, if we will but return unto him. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.